Amen. Well, this morning, we will be looking at a text that confronts us with an age-old problem. It is a problem that has been around since nearly the beginning of time. It has destroyed empires, it's torn apart marriages, wrecked friendships, and ruined people. It is detectable by nearly all people except the one who has it. It wears a thousand different masks. It blinded Samson, embittered Jonah, led Judas into betrayal, caused Satan to fall from the heavenly ranks, and it lives in you and me. I'm talking about that five-letter word, P-R-I-D-E, pride. And as we open our Bibles to John chapter 3, we enter into a story in which we will make three discoveries that all lead to this overarching truth, which is the point of this entire message. Here it is. Nothing humbles a proud sinner like a slain Savior. Nothing humbles a proud sinner like a slain Savior. And so we begin by looking at John chapter 3. I invite you to open your Bibles if you haven't already. Beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. John the Baptist was a sort of celebrity in his day. Matthew tells us in his gospel that people were literally coming to him from all over Jerusalem and Judea to hear his preaching and to be baptized by him. There was so much buzz surrounding John the Baptist that people actually began to call him Elijah or even the Christ himself. Other contemporary sources say that he had surpassed 50,000 Twitter followers and people couldn't stop taking selfies with him. That's a joke, but you get the point. John the Baptist was a big deal. But, but now, something has changed. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus and his disciples go into the Judean countryside preaching the message of repentance and baptizing people not far from where John the Baptist is doing the same exact thing. In other words, a new preacher is in town. And his popularity is causing some of John the Baptist's disciples to freak out. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Picture it. John is preaching, is baptizing, and not far from him, he can see Jesus doing the same exact thing. Here stands John the Baptist, the wild-eyed, camel-hair-wearing, locust-eating celebrity who, 
by the looks of it, isn't that big of a deal anymore compared to a Jewish carpenter. And as if this weren't humiliating enough, John's friends, oh, what friends they are, feel the need to point his attention to it. Verse 26. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And it is here that we make our first discovery, which is this, the pervasiveness of pride. The pervasiveness of pride. After seeing person after person go to hear Jesus and be baptized by him, John's disciples begin to worry. They begin to think thoughts like, is our rabbi being outshined? Will John lose his influence? Will our ministry be eclipsed by another? So they come to John and begin to remind him of some things. Verse 26, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan. In other words, John, remember how you and Jesus used to be on the same team? Remember that our ministry used to be together? They keep going to whom you bore witness. Now, John, don't forget, you told people about him before he was even here. You were first. And they keep going. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. In other words, John, he just had to start his ministry right down the street, didn't he? And now look what's happening. Everybody's going to him. And in the midst of these words, it's not hard to smell that five-letter word, isn't it? P-R-I-D-E, pride. Pride. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes the following about pride. Pride, he says, gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more than the next person. We all know this is true, right? It's not enough to have the toy when your brother and sister have a bigger one. It's not enough to have a great job when your friend gets a better one. It's not enough to have gifts when someone else's gifts are more recognized and celebrated. But here's the thing. What makes pride so toxic is that it is easy to see in others, but hard to see in yourself. In other words, Pride is the carbon monoxide of life. Hard to detect, but don't be mistaken. If you breathe it in long enough, you will be harmed. And the reason pride is so hard to detect in ourselves is because it wears camouflage. A thousand different masks. But perhaps the most well-worn Mask that pride wears is a mask called envy. Envy. When father pride and mother comparison come together, they make an ugly looking baby named envy. <laughs> Simply put, envy is wanting what someone else has and hating them for having it. Whereas the Bible, get this, whereas the Bible, as we heard a couple weeks ago, 
tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Envy subverts that. Envy rejoices with those who weep and weeps with those who rejoice. John's disciples, listen, John's disciples aren't celebrating that Jesus is baptizing people. They are weeping that they're not the ones doing it. And here's the thing, they don't even realize it. So here's the question. How then can I know when I'm giving into envy? Well, envy has three manifestations. Manifestation number one, discontentment. Instead of continually thanking God for what you have, you continually complain about what you don't have. You walk into church in the morning, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You walk into church in the morning, you see that perfect family, right? Husband and wife look so happy. The kids are perfectly dressed and well-behaved. All the while, you're dragging a screaming kid. The baby had a blowout in the car. And you're late to church for the fifth week in a row. And in the midst of that, you begin wanting what others have. And you begin to think things like, I wish my kids were like their kids. I wish I had his job. I wish I was married. I wish I could afford that car. And on and on and on and on. Friend, listen, I know this from experience probably more than anyone in this room. Nothing will siphon joy out of your heart more quickly than discontentment. Nothing. Three manifestations of envy. First, discontentment. Secondly, resentment. Resentment. You see what someone gets? They have now what you want, and instead of rejoicing with them, you begin to resent them because they have what you wanted. We all know what this is like. You've been working in the office for years, but when the hot shot new guy shows up, the boss appears to notice him more than you. And as a result, you begin to look at this individual and find as many flaws as you possibly can. In other words, you go on sin hunts. And you attempt to justify why you feel the way you do when in reality, you're just mad that they're getting the recognition you crave. And when you, friend, when you begin to feel this way, it is not long when resentment grows up and matures into the third manifestation of envy, and that is this, bitterness. Bitterness. At this point, you no longer just dislike someone because they got what you wanted. You hate them. Brothers and sisters, being bitter is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. And here's the plain truth. Just gonna tell it to you straight. If, if you are here this morning and you are bitter towards someone today because they have what you think you deserve, you're not just bitter at that person, you're bitter at God. Because underneath all envy 
The, des- the devil whispers this lie to you. You deserve more. You deserve more. My, my friends, how ludicrous. In, in, light, in light of all of our sin, the only thing you and I deserve today is hell. And last I checked, we're not there. Which means we've been given abundant grace. God has given us grace upon grace, not so that we can look at the grace he gives to others in envy, but so that we can look at the grace he's given to us and say, thank you God, I don't deserve this. Now John's disciples come to him with a great opportunity to exhibit pride and envy. But notice what he says in verse 27. So verse 26, they come to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Verse 27, what's John gonna say? John answered, this is an amazing statement. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. In a remarkable display of self-denial, John looks his glory-hungry disciples in the eye and says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You know what that means, right? Here's what John is saying. At the end of the day, whatever I have is a gift of God Almighty. Whatever, because you don't have even one thing apart from God. This is why the Apostle Paul asks the rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. I love this. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Nothing. Every possession, every relationship, Every physical capability in every breath is a gift of God. And get this, we don't deserve it. None of it. Knowing this, John looks at the droves of people all walking to Jesus. And he looks at his disciples and says, everything I have is a gift of the sovereign God of the universe. I'm content. But notice he doesn't stop there, verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John reminds his disciples yet again, I am not the Christ. But to stress the point, because obviously they didn't get it the first time, He tells his disciples that his, and consequently, our purpose as followers of Jesus is, get this, to be like the best man in a wedding. Best man in a wedding. Now, in weddings today, the best man doesn't play that big of a role. I mean, it's an honor, for sure, but your job as the best man is to maybe plan a party, Make a toast. Don't lose the ring if you value your life. 
and don't say anything stupid. That's pretty much the role of the best man today. But in a Jewish wedding, the best man was vital to the success of the wedding. In fact, the best man planned everything. I'm glad I'm a best man today and not then. Best man planned everything. But his most important job came at the end. After the ceremony and the party, the best man's main job was to stand guard at the bridal chamber. This is the room where the bride was preparing to meet her new husband. And his greatest joy of the day came when he would let the bridegroom in to be with his bride for the very first time. And then he'd walk away rejoicing. And it is here that we make our second discovery. First, the pervasiveness of pride. Secondly, the peril of self-glory. The peril of self-glory. In the Old Testament, God often refers to his people as being his bride and even his glory with himself being their husband. In other words, John is saying that followers of Jesus have their joy completed when God gets glory. Imagine being at a wedding. You're sitting down, everyone's dressed prime and proper. The best man is standing by the, by the groom, and the bride walks in, and everyone stands up. All eyes are fixed on this beautiful woman dressed in white, and as she walks down the aisle, and the groom is smiling eye to eye, and every woman in the place is taking picture after picture after picture, even if they can't see the bride, they're taking picture after picture because the bride is beautiful, and in the midst of all that, all of a sudden, the best man stands in front of the groom and says, look at me, don't I look good? And John says, that's what we look like every time we try to steal his glory. Behind every lie we tell to impress others, every hint of anger because we are overlooked, and every Longing to be adored by people is the siren call of self-glory ringing. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Yet, the Bible stands in the face of our glory-hungry hearts and says, God alone is worthy of all glory. But why? Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. What John is saying, simply put, is this. Jesus is worthy of all glory because he is the father's son. 
And the Father has given his Son the keys to the entire universe. It's all his. And you know, side note, this is what should make Christians really content. That's why Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? The earth. In other words, we Christians do not have to grovel for things of the earth because Jesus says, at the end of the age, I'm gonna give it all to you anyways. That's amazing. And what he says next should blow our minds, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This leads to our third and final discovery, which is this, the power of God's grace. The power of God's grace. Here in this small verse, verse 36, John shows us how the power of God's grace gives us two weapons with which we can use to fight the ever-present pride and longing for self-glory that resides in our hearts. Two weapons. Weapon number one, the grace of God. Look with me back at verse 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The whoever here includes self-sufficient, glory-hungry, proud people. Or in other words, you and me. See, what makes someone humble is not grit, but grace. You don't become humble by waking up in the morning and saying to yourself, I'm going to be humble today. You become humble by being humbled. And that's precisely what the gospel does. It humbles us. Here's the gospel. God humbles himself by becoming one of us, lives a life of perfect humility, gets killed by proud people, is raised from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father so that when proud people like us place their faith in him, they are humbled and boast in God alone. That's the gospel. In other words, get this. One, how would you answer this question? How proud are you? How proud are you? How proud am I? We are so proud, the gospel tells us, it took the life of God's son to make you humble. That's how proud we are. How does the grace of God then help us fight pride? Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, what? Boast. No one may boast. Here's what what the point is of this passage. 
Only God can turn glory thieves into glory givers. Only God can do that. And the more we remind ourselves of this, the more we can say with John, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's the mission of the Christian life, isn't it? But how often do we want that verse to say, he must increase, but I must increase too. But that's not how it works. Jesus tells us that if you are to follow me, you are to pick up your cross and deny yourself. To live a life of total exaltation of Jesus. So the first weapon we use to fight pride is the grace of God. The second weapon is this, the cross of Christ. Look with me back at verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. The consequences of pride are both temporal and eternal. Pride brings chaos in this life and condemnation in the next. The wrath of God poured out on proud people tells us that the highest form of pride is hearing the gospel and saying in response, I don't need it. And, and, and perhaps, perhaps God has brought you to this place to hear one more time, yes, you do. John is telling us in verse 36 that God's wrath will be poured out on all people who live in willful rebellion to his rule and reign. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the inn. Those to whom God says, excuse me, those, those who say to God, thy will be done. The second kind of person are those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And then he closes it with this line, all that are in hell, choose it. And this is why Christians love the gospel. Because Jesus took the wrath than we deserve so that we might be freed from the tyranny of ourselves. Question, do you ever get sick of yourself? I sure do. I mean, a couple weeks ago, in fact, if my wife is here, she would be like, well, an hour ago, you know. But a couple weeks ago, I just found myself in a conversation with someone, and I just said something wicked. Just wicked. And it was kind of like one of those out-of-body experiences where like the Holy Spirit's like looking at you like, dude, you've lost your mind, right? And, and, and later I just came back and said, oh Lord, I, I am so messed up. I can't wait to get to heaven where I'm freed from sin. How about you? Can't wait for it. Because don't we just get so sick of the pride that laces through everything? 
where when something good happens to someone, we can't just say, oh, I am so happy for you. There's just something inside that says, why couldn't that happen to me, right? The pervasiveness of pride. And that's what the gospel frees us from. The gospel frees us from you. Here's the paradox of humanity. We are proud people with nothing to be proud about. It's a paradox. This is precisely why we need the cross of Christ. John Stott, in his excellent, excellent book titled The Cross of Christ, I recommend it to you, wrote this statement. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in the history, nothing in history rather, or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves. Ain't that the truth? Especially in self-righteousness. Until we have visited a place called Calvary. Then listen to this line. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Why do we come to church and sing the gospel hear the gospel, minister the gospel, because we need to be reminded at least once a week, we're not that impressive. In case you didn't know, you're not God's first round draft pick. You were undrafted. Nobody wanted you. You're 40 times stank, couldn't bench press a thing, and yet God in his grace condescends to you and says, I'll die for you and loved you, listen, before the foundation of the world. (laughs) Before you had anything to offer, he set his love upon you. That's amazing. The cross tells us two things simultaneously. First, you are so messed up, Jesus had to die for you. Secondly, you are so loved, Jesus died for you. Or in the words of the old hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss in poor contempt on all my pride. And it is because of this, friends, that we can come to church and we can leave the church rejoicing really happy because nothing humbles a proud sinner like a slain savior. And oh, don't we need it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, 
We confess that we are a proud people and we need to be humbled by your grace. Would you remind us today who we are as we are reminded of who you are? Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us while we were still yet sinners. Oh, Lord, remind us of the gospel today and the rest of the week and the rest of our lives that we are not glorious, but you are. And we say in response, praise be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.